The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. In 1993, 18-year-old John Edward Smith was identified by a surviving shooting victim who now admits he lied when he testified. Today, you're going to hear how prosecutors withheld evidence about another individual responsible for the shooting. You're going to hear how John's attorney failed to present evidence to show that he wasn't involved. And also joining us today is Deirdre O'Connor of Innocence Manners, who you heard from last week. Innocence Matters is from Torrance, California, and last week's show was Susan Mellon. If you have want to know information about Deirdre, um, you can go to last week's show, December 11th, 2014, the show, the Gift of Exoneration show about Susan Mellon. Now, um, Deirdre and John are uh, a little delayed in connecting with us or having a little trouble getting uh, connected, but... Um, we want to get started with, De- with Deirdre as soon as she logs on here. And um, Innocence Matters is the legacy of Troy Davis, a case that inspired Deirdre to found Innocence Matters. Troy was executed in Georgia September 21st, 2011, despite compelling evidence that he was innocent. What a travesty. It breaks your heart, doesn't it? And uh, I think they're going to, I think Deirdre and John are going to join us uh, in just a second here. Let me just check. Deirdre, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for having us. Yeah. And John, are you there? Yes. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you both. Uh, This is wonderful that you could join us today. I know you had a little trouble connecting on, so we're all good. Yes. And uh, Deirdre, I was just saying that... uh, you founding Innocence Matters was an inspiration that you had from the execution of Troy Davis that you worked on so hard, and he was executed in 2007 anyway, and uh, you thought it had to stop there. Uh, yes, I was working on his case uh, at the time that I formed Innocence Matters, but we were near the end of the road. We, we started Innocence Matters uh, just prior to his execution, but um, it was... Oh, just a, such an eye-opening experience to see how challenging it was for the innocent to get the attention of uh, people in the system. Yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, the work of the Innocence Projects across the country is so important, Deirdre. Tell us what's going on in Innocence Matters, because I know you have some things pending. Yes, well, we just had an, uh, our second exoneration, Susan Mellon, um, in October, and we, that case is connected to another case in where two other young men um, were wrongly uh, arrested and then later convicted for a murder that they didn't do. Uh, my client was 18 when he got um, arrested. His name is John Clenny, and his co-defendant, Edna Breakey, was only 15 uh, when he was arrested. And both of those men are innocent, and we've established compelling evidence to um, to persuade people of that. But we're kind of in a little bit of a holding pattern, and we're anticipating the district attorney will uh, start giving that case the attention it deserves, and we're uh, hopeful with a little extra work here we can get those two out uh, by the spring. Okay, very good. So um, you feel that you feel strongly that you have enough evidence um, that'll get that case overturned. 
Yes, there's a lot of overlap between uh, that case and Susan Mellon's. The witnesses in that case uh, had a role in um, in the wrongful conviction of uh, uh, John Clenny and Ed Dumbreaky. So we're, because the district attorney did the right thing in the Susan Mellon case and we're, the facts are really not uh, in dispute, we anticipate um, that the right thing will happen in this case uh, very quickly. Well, I think it's fascinating, Deirdre, that you have developed such a uh, credibility with the L.A. District Attorney's Office. Well, it, it's, it is... Um, an interesting uh, change, change of events for me. As a public <laughs> defender, I was always really mo- much more focused on building my credibility with the jurors, and I, uh, you know, had a us against them mentality, and you know, in, in, for good reason, you know, at times. But um, in post conviction matters, it's really. Uh, it saves the client a lot of time if you can find a way to work with the prosecutor. And what we found is that if we package our cases up correctly, if, we're, if we show that we've, we're willing to look under every stone and we have nothing to hide, that we truly believe in the innocence of this client, um, then they tend, we tend to overcome some barriers that are naturally there. They stop seeing... Right. Stop seeing me as a traditional defense lawyer who's trying to kind of hide the ball and and um, pull one over on them, and they can see from the quality of our work that we really are concerned about this innocent person languishing in prison. Yeah, yeah, and I, I suspect you see them t- differently as well. <laughs> oh, I do. I actually I, I like them sometimes <laughs> uh, a lot more than I ever did. I really I see the. Um, uh, the concern and care in them and, and, and the integrity for the people that we worked with. We were very fortunate on both cases to get some really outstanding uh, district attorney, um, uh, uh, um, associate district attorneys working on the case. That's fabulous. I'm so, you know, I'm so glad to hear this because there is that conflict all the time between the prosecutor and the defense attorney and the prosecutor is going to get a conviction re- for by any means necessary and the defense attorney is going to get a, uh, an acquittal the same way and it, it's really uh, it's sad it's sad that it works that way yeah it is. winning and losing instead of truth and justice yeah it is it's um getting it right we really have to look at how we can fix that that's for sure yeah so um john welcome Hello. Hi. Um, how did Innocence Matters get involved in your case? Uh, well, I contacted Deidre just on the individual, independent basis, not, you know, before Innocence Matters developed and just, you know, was looking for help, trying to find somebody to help me because uh, at this time I was like, you know, 17 years in prison. So I was just writing letters and contacting who I can contact and I ran across her phone number and just, you know, uh, you know extended Send it, uh, send it out to her and um, see if she can help me, and she did, obviously. Wow, that's great. And Deirdre, what, what were you thinking when you re- got this communication from John? Well, so this was um, December. It was at, it was in between Christmas and New Year's of de- December of two thousand and nine, and I had started to use the name Innocence Matters. I had the website, but we really hadn't formed. We weren't a nonprofit yet, um, and I was. He determined to develop uh, the organization um, as soon as I could, uh, but I was still working on Troy's case and wasn't sure if the timing was right. And when John's call came through, I just felt like, um, based on the quality of the the conversation, like I could ask John anything, and he answered without hesitation and honestly. He gave me, you know, whatever the bad facts of the case were, he shared those with me mm-hmm. uh, without hesitation. And he was consistent, and I could come around it from a variety of angles, and I was just getting one consistent answer after another. Um, and so I felt like there was a real uh, possibility that John was innocent during that first phone call. And it ultimately, um, I dug in, I got some, some of the paperwork, and it ultimately caused me um, in March to form the organization, and John became our very first client. John, now, now you have a legacy. That's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so De- Deirdre will always say that John Smith was the one who caused me to, to get started. Right, that's, right. She, yeah, she turns me as as the baby, so as their baby, so I guess that's what it is. <laughs> that, I go for that. That's it. 
Well, John, how old were you in 1993 when you were arrested on this case? I was 18. Just turned 18. Just turned 18. My goodness. And now I, I know you'd been arrested. Uh, you were already in custody when this happened, when they, when they identified you on this. But they never charged you for anything. Right. No. And, you know, with, with everything that's going on um, lately with essentially black man walking, black man driving, um, that sounds like what it was at the time, wasn't it? They but it always is. It always is. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunate. They hold you until they can get it together and get it right. Just hold you, you know, up in limbo. And that's what they did. And so they had, um, they had, somebody gave them a tip that you might have been the shooter and they put you in a lineup. Um, yeah, I guess that's how it happened. They, when they just came and told me, when I, like you said, while I was already in custody, that somebody pointed me out in, in a murder, and I just literally laughed at them and didn't pay no, pay no mind because I knew, you know, I had nothing to do with anything. So, mm-hmm. and and a couple of days later, I was calling the booking front. Well, and I, if I could just jump in, you know, what they had um, a drive-by shooting, which they believed was attributable to a specific gang, and the their investigation was really limited to, well, let's see, who, who from that gang is, um, comes through the, the system, you know? And anytime somebody came into custody, they would mm-hmm. go interview them and see if they, um, if they could p- uh, put this particular crime on them. And that's, if you look at the, uh, the chronological record of the, their investigation, that was the substance of their investigation. Um, they, they had some people um, reportedly uh, coming in saying that somebody was bragging about doing it, but the, the details of that didn't match, um, didn't match John. So um, anyway, they got latched onto John, and once they decided they were going to uh, float that one by, they put him in a photo array and presented him to a witness two and a half months after uh, the crime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the circumstances of that, of that uh, really should have had, there should have been a lot of red flags there as well because this crime happened um, 8 o'clock in the morning. It was just a matter of seconds. Uh, nobody was anticipating it. A car drove up, started shooting at two men, two young kids actually, um, 15, 16-year-olds, um, and drove off. And nobody, you know, one, one person was left dead. The only, the, the uh, sole eyewitness was uh, seriously injured and was in a state of shock and, and was uh, gasping for air and laying on the concrete. Um, and a few other witnesses who, who got a glimpse of the car as it rode off. And everybody that saw the car described it as a black vehicle. Um, the... Um, person who was injured and later became the eyewitness uh, really didn't have a lot of details, couldn't give any information about the, about the shooter, and said, um, assumed it was gang members, black gang members, and, and believed it was a red car. So his, mm. his perception was so skewed that he, could, he, he wasn't even consistent with what everybody else saw as a black car. And would the red car be connected with the Bloods? There was no red car uh, found to be connected with. I mean, his his perception. Oh, the, oh yes, it might have been. It yeah. Been. Interesting. So, uh, John, did you know any one of these two guys? No, I didn't. You'd never met him, never heard of him? No, I didn't. And why, I mean, hmm, why would, uh, it was D'Anthony Williams, wasn't it, that identified you? No, um, uh... Th- no, um, oh, uh, Landu is the surviving witness. Anthony right. Williams okay. is the young man who, who passed away, who, who passed was killed. Away. Okay. Um, did Landu just identify him from either the fo- a photo lineup or the physical lineup? Well, so what That's happened it? was Landu um, really couldn't give much information at the scene. He said the, the uh, paramedics, uh, the first responders tried to get some details because they didn't think he was going to survive. And they just got what I told you, red car, guys, uh, uh, gang members uh, in a car, in a red car, uh, black guys. And then the detectives that ultimately handled the case went to, um, and I might be off a little bit on the dates because I haven't reviewed the file recently, but they went to the hospital within a week or so, week and a half, and got a statement from him 
um, that just was equally vague and still sticking with the red car option. And what he's uh, what he said was. Um, they're walking, they don't see anything, all of a sudden they hear the shots ring out, they, they scatter, uh, he hides behind a truck and then uh, runs down the street to get away, and then he turns around to, um, to look and he sees the car leaving, and he comes back to the location where the, where the shooting happened, and um, he's struck, he realized then that he's struck, and he, and he makes his way to a neighbor's um, steps. The, uh, at the front door and collapses um, and he sees his friend lying on the opposite side of the street on the sidewalk and he's you know just gasping for air asking people to help him a neighbor comes out and puts a towel on him. and uh, you know so that's the description he gives um, the shooter it's still just black guys in a red car um, he's, I, he gives a little bit of a hair description and I have yeah. to understand in that time that passed he is talking to other people Right. But he says that the the shooter had a fade and um, had some braids hanging down the forehead, which did not fit John Smith. Then once the police settled on John Smith, well, before that, um, the witness is said to have called the police with some information, rumors that he's hearing from other people out on the street. Hmm. Not information that he has, but he's just he's just relaying rumors that he heard. The police settle on John Smith and uh, bring him. They go to this kid's um, high school, uh, Landu's, put him in handcuffs, put him in the back uh, of the police uh, car, bring him to the station, show him autopsy photos of his deceased friend, and uh, while they're doing the photo array. They're trying to pressure him into making an identification, and this is by the witness's account, um, by creating this, this, you need to do this for your friend. Um, for sure, yeah. Looks yeah. at the photo array, just coincidentally, the person that they're saying, that the police are telling him did it, happens to be somebody he went to school with a, lo- a long time ago. He can't remember which school it was. He thought it was middle school at the time. He just knows the face looks uh, familiar, and he knows, that he knows his first name. is called him Johnny. Um, and he says, yeah, I went to school with, I went to school with Johnny, middle school. And then as it turns out, when you look at the records, they didn't go to middle school together. They were in the same elementary school for a year or two, but they were in different grades. I they, were, they were separated by two years. Yeah. Okay. We need to take a quick break, you guys. Um, you're listening to Deirdre O'Connor and, and John Smith explore John's wrongful conviction. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today, my guests are recently exonerated John Smith and his attorney, founder and executive director of Innocence Matters, Deirdre Deirdre O'Connor. John, I know that I looked at the, uh, when you released, and it's been two years and three months since you got out. Right. And you actually spent, were you there 19 years? Uh, Yeah, 19 years, nine months, 19 days. (laughs) <laughs> but who's counting? <laughs> How many minutes and seconds were this? It well, must it was have been. 7,233 days. <laughs> My goodness. Right. Now, I, I've got to ask you, I understand that when somebody is released through an exoneration, they don't even get walk money from the prison. Correct. Get nothing. Correct. When you get out of prison on parole, you get, what, $200 and maybe some clothes? I guess. I don't know. I've never been released on parole. I don't know. Yeah. But that's what I hear. I know, you get, I know you're supposed to get gate money and things get, like that. You get gate money, uh, at least to get a bus and get to some location, get home. Right, uh, right. Get vouchers some, and things like that for, you know, yeah. Something. Okay. But when you get out, when you're exonerated, after spending 19 years and whatever, how many days and weeks and days that was, um, you get absolutely nothing. No. Deirdre, we have to do something about this. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot that they have to do because the other part of it is that you don't get any of the programs and the, you know, the reentry. All of the all of the reentry programs that are available for other people are not available um, for exonerees because you're not being supervised by a parole um, officer, and so you're not um, you're not directed to those services. It's astonishing, and particularly with the early release programs that are going across the country particularly in California, it's even more of a contrast. Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. Can so, I say something? Uh, yeah, sure. And, 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 and it's even worse because, you know, like, like in my situation, I did all my time on level four. And, and on level four, um, which is maximum security, there are no programs. You can't touch a computer. You can't be around certain things to educate yourself. You know what I mean? So they never, you know, only thing I was able to get in the 20 years was a GED. I've never seen a computer. I was, you know, we don't have these classes. The only thing you can do is be a janitor in there as far as, you know, clean up or go to, you know, general education, and that's it, you know, and that's, um, that's bad, you know what I mean, because they don't equip you for the real world because really they don't, they don't plan for you to be out here, get out, or if you do get out, to stay out long, you know what I mean? So right. that's right. something that has to change, I think, too. Well, let's talk about the classification just for a minute. So... <clears throat> What happens when you go, when you actually get sent to, initially, to prison? You go through a classification process, right? Right. How does that work? Uh, well, I don't, uh, well, then it was, um, you just, because they had, uh, you go to a reception center, they had it designated for, you know, level ones, twos, threes, fours, because in California there's four levels. And like I say, four is the, the uh, maximum security, so... If you got a lot of time, you know, most of the lifers and things like that go to the same same reception center. So they just pretty much, uh, you come in, if you get a life, you come in with 69 points. And, uh, okay. and that's pretty much it. There's, there's no real uh, classification, but, you know, there's just, you know, if you, you tell them you have certain problems or issues, they might address that. But other than that, it's just, you know, they give you points and they ship you off to, uh, to the prison of their choice. And you were, uh, let's see, what your sentence was what, John? It was life plus... Life plus 29 years to life, I think, plus a three years enhancement. Okay, and the enha- enhancement was for what? Um, I think it was a gun enhancement because it was, you know, the crime was committed with a gun, so you get okay. gun enhancements, you know, things like that. Okay, so because it's a murder and because of all of that and it's a life case you are automatically a level four maximum security. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I like and that, that. Ne- Life sentence, you're going, you're going to a level four, or, you know, initially. Then you, work, you can either work your way down or stay where you're at. Okay. And case. so for the entire 19 years, you were level four. 
Yes, well, with the exception of eight months to a level three. Okay. Yeah, then they, they figured out they made a mistake and sent me back to a level four. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Yes. Okay. And and what does that mean? <clears throat> what it, what does that mean on a daily basis? What? Uh, what do you mean? <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> I'm <clears throat> got a frog in my throat here. What does that mean? Like, what what's your life like on a level four? What do you do every day? Well, to me, the levels didn't make a difference. I woke up in prison, so level one, two, three, or four would have been all the same to me. Waking up, you know, confined in a bathroom with another male. But right. it's just, you know, it meant I just had to try hard to get out because it was getting worse. Mm-hmm. You know, I seen uh, the, uh, how, how prison is evolving and, and it's changing and it's getting, you know, as far as it's just getting worse in there. You know what I mean? So it just makes you work harder to try to get out, try to find a way out, which I was, you know, which I tried to do from the day I went in there. Right. But if you were a, if you were a level one, for example, or a level two, you would have been able to have a work assignment. You, you would go be to able work, to... go outside, you know, go outside at yeah. night, you know what I mean, walk around, you know what I mean, yeah. Because level four is you get, you can only get, you get two hours recreation a day out, out, of your, out of your cell a day. And that's if you're not on lockdown, which on level four is 70 percent of the time you're on lockdown. So, you know, you might see, you know, outside some fresh air, maybe three to four hours a week on a level four, you know. Sort of, and then, you know, you get visits and things like that, then you get out your cage, but, yeah. But level ones, you know, you walk, it's open, it's dormitory, um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty much wide open. And uh, level four is a sales, two-man sales, and sometimes one-man sales. Okay, two-man sales, and then what, what are, are they, what, six by eight? I have no idea. They're no bigger than the closet or bathroom. I I don't know the uh, dynamics of it, but they're no big. Trust me. They're no. I can reach out either way, and I'm a a kind of short guy, and I can touch both walls. You You know what I mean? Extend my hands, and I can touch both walls. Okay. All right. A bunk bed? No, no, it's not a bunk bed. Not a bunk um, bed? Okay. it's, It's metal that's made into the wall, that's stuck out the wall. Really? Okay. So it's just metal that's, you know, they, they made it to weld it into the wall. So it just shuts out the wall. And not exactly a soft mattress either, huh, John? No. No, there's no such thing. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. So, you know, because a lot of times people on the outside say, you know, it's it's no big deal. that You know, they they don't have to do anything. They can just, you know, be in prison. It, it's a it's a piece of cake. But they need to do a volunteer and see how many people they get. They, get <laughs> exactly. yeah. they need to do a little volunteer thing, put it out there. You want to, it's no big thing. You know what I mean? You don't have to work. They'll yeah. feed you. You know what I mean? You get to sleep on a, uh, on a mattress, you know, and see how many volunteers they get since it's no big thing. <laughs> exactly right. I totally agree with you. So, uh Deirdre, let's talk about what happened in John's trial because there were, there was some real travesty uh, with the way John's evidence was presented. Yeah, well, they um, basically relied heavily on the eyewitness who um, who felt compelled. And you know, this is the interesting thing about this case. It wasn't known. Uh, nobody was exploring this at the time. It's another case of bad lawyering, overzealous prosecution. Uh, but this witness did not want to go forward with his ID. He had tried to recant uh, before either before the preliminary hearing or just after it. Uh, he called the police station and told him, you know, the detectives are, are saying, you know, that I, I know something I don't know. I really don't know who did this shooting. And that uh, that went nowhere. We've not been able to um, um, find the paper trail <clears throat> for that. Um, and then before he testified, because he was in custody at the time, um, he was in, held in the, um, the jury deliberation room just because it's just outside the, the courtroom and there was a bailiff waiting there with him. And he tells us he was telling the bailiff, you know, I really don't want to testify. I don't really have anything to say. I don't know what went down. Um, and the bailiff, according to this witness, encouraged him um, by saying, "Just remember the, the the sound of the gunfire, the beat of the gun, uh, the beat of the shots, and just mm-hmm. tell uh, tell what you told the police." Um, and when he got on the stand, he saw DeAnthony Williams' mother in the back of the courtroom crying, and you know, mm-hmm. between the pressure of everybody, nobody listening to him and, and giving him a way out, and the mother crying, he felt compelled to go 
with um, with and testify against John. Um, John's lawyer did not uh, do a good job by any definition. Um, he did not effectively um, attack the witness, and more importantly, John had an alibi. John was um, in, a, in a home with a number of people a few miles away um, and could verify through his witnesses that he, wasn't, um, that he wasn't there. And the lawyer did a really poor job in preparing that alibi. He was interviewing people outside the uh, courtroom, in the courtroom hall, in the courthouse hallway, and making decisions uh, you know, within minutes of putting them on about whether he was going to put them on. And he ended up in his rush, and um, he ended up selecting um, the people that were most vulnerable to attack and uh, not going with people that um, would have been able to support the alibi perhaps uh, in a more credible way. Um, hmm. So it was... Like all of these cases are, what the, the strategy seems to be work on the juror's emotion, you know, emphasize the, right. the horrific nature of the loss of life and the, the, the uh, gratuitous violence and create instill the fear that somehow this particular defendant is, is the person responsible for that and if these jurors don't um, hold him accountable, then, you know, they're, they're allowing this to... To go on, right. and it takes right. it, it puts it into an emotional state rather than a logical. Let's let's examine the evidence. How, why should we believe this particular eyewitness? What does he say um, that's that's credible? And there were real, you know. And if he's not credible, let's look at that. And there were real problems with with what with what he was testifying to. You know, his 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 inability to observe the face of the shooter should have been emphasized. Um, Continually, because that's the crux of it. How can you identify right. anyone if you don't have the opportunity to look at their face? And the description right. that he gave at various times about how he responded to the gunfire and when he looked would rule out any possibility of him ever be, being able to make an identification. Yeah, and you know, it's such an uphill battle. I see this all the time, Deirdre and John. Um, it's such an uphill battle if somebody does give information initially it's hard for them to ever get out of it because if they do tell the truth then on the witness stand, they get impeached with their statement to the police and, and undermined, and then they get confused. And it, so it's really tough when somebody once makes that statement. Right, and, and people, it's, it's also intimidating to be on the stand yeah. and yeah. to have the nerve to go against what the prosecutor and the police ex- yeah. do. Uh, I mean, he yeah. was a young man uh, who, you know, didn't want to direct the, their attention on him. Um, you know, I think I think that there's what we really have. What it really has to boil down to is we have to get to a place where the police and the prosecutors are being objective in their investigation and open to the possibility that their initial hunch might be wrong, and they have to be willing to and able to build a case based on objective evidence and not, this is the theory we like, now let's push that through. Mm-hmm. And they, they should be open, they have to be open to um, hearing witnesses when they, when they say um, that they felt pressured, whether the police meant to pressure them or not. And in this case, based on what the witnesses said, I think the police absolutely intended to pressure this witness. I mean, they handcuffed him at his at his high school and showed him autopsy yeah. photos of his uh, friend, or not, maybe not autopsy photos, but crime scene photos of his dead friend. Um, but even if they didn't intend to pressure him, if a witness, if an eyewitness comes forward and says, "I felt pressured." At the time of the identification, I was trying to help the police, and I selected that man because I thought um, that that's the person that they suspected. The police and the prosecutor have to be able to hear that and document that and let the jurors know that because that is how these wrongful convictions happen. Um, You know, witnesses try to accommodate the police because they think the police are trying to, to capture the guilty person. That's absolutely true. We need to take another break, guys. That's the voice of Deirdre O'Connor. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program is the third of five exonerees that's being featured in the next few weeks. Exoneree John Smith, after 19 years, has been free, just has had his freedom just two years and three months and is here with his attorney, Deirdre O'Connor. Um, so you were just saying, um, Deirdre, about um, the problem with the attorney, the problem with the evidence, um, the emotional impact that... That often happens in a courtroom, particularly when, with a passionate prosecutor. Um, and, I, and I think also from what I've seen, and maybe you'll agree or disagree, once it gets to the trial level, the prosecutor is very um, vested in a conviction. Oh, that's so true. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and sadly, long before that. Uh, even at the preliminary hearing stage, they really, uh, oftentimes prosecutors seem to be more interested. They're just looking f- ahead to the trial and trying to create a record that would be useful to them at trial. Right, right. And, you know, and we know that prosecutors get their assignments and all of that from the number of convictions they have, which is an unfortunate situation. Um, and, and, you know, also the, the role of the police, the role of the police is to close their cases. Well, yeah, that may be how they're defining it, right? <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I, I, I think that's how they think. I, I'm actually saying not, maybe not their role, but that's how they look at it. Right. That their job is to close their cases because they have open cases and it looks like they're not doing their job either. Well, and I think in these cases, and we, we actually look for these kinds of cases where the person, um, the person they ultimately latch on is somebody uh, who's disenfranchised in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've gotten themselves in trouble here and there, and they're, they're marginalized. They're treated differently, and we have a different tier of justice for, for that group of people. And in those cases, um, it really just seems to be about, you know, putting an end, closing this case. Um, in these uh, drive-by gang shootings and stuff, as long as they get somebody who they can say, uh, you know, is in their minds is better off the street, they, I, I feel like there is a mentality that justice is being done. Um, meanwhile, oh. the, the actual sh- killer is allowed to be free and, and commit other offenses, which is what we believe happened in this case as well. I'm sure you've heard as often as I have. Well, he may not have done this case, but he's done something. Right. And, that's, and, and the problem is that we, um, 
we build a justice system around that and we can guarantee that all, the entire thing is just going to be a manipulation on every end. Uh, there's no sense of being able to trust the system. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to, the system is meant to identify and prosecute the people who were actually guilty of the crime. Okay. And yeah. if it's doing that, it's working. And if it's not, it's not a justice system. And, and, I, and I certainly don't mean to say, and I know you don't either, that, I mean, there's a lot of good uh, law enforcement investigations. There's a lot of good prosecutors. Uh, there's a lot of prosecutors that present their trials in an ethical, measured way. But when you have one of these, like John, like John's case, where, they, where he's, he's identified and convicted um, when his, the person that he's depending on, his defense attorney, drops the ball. It's just such a shame. Right. So, John, I, I know you're taking care of your grandmother. Your grandmother has stuck by you through thick and thin, hasn't she? Right. Yeah. yeah. And you were, you were living, actually living with her at the time this happened. No, well, I, was, I was living with my, my, my other grandmother at that time. Oh, my your other grandmother. Okay. But, I, you know, but this is the grandmother that raised me, though. Okay. And, and she's s- also the one who mortgaged her home to hire a private lawyer after John was convicted. They mm-hmm. spent a considerable amount of money to hire a private lawyer, um, and that firm ended up messing up the case um, as much as the trial lawyer uh, had. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And, yeah. Well, and let's just talk about the process a little bit, because what happens after you get convicted, uh, if, you're, if your attorney did the job of preserving your case for appeal, they have to file something to preserve the case, right, Deirdre? Yes. So if they, they do their job and they preserve the case for appeal, um, then, it, <clears throat> then at some point in time, usually years later, they get assigned a... Uh, an attorney for the appeal. Yeah, but in my case, I had a retained appeal attorney. Oh, right away. Um, yes. I, okay. I, 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 once I got found guilty, um, that's when my grandparents mortgaged their home because, like, literally, I mean, you know, we should have did it before, but it was like no need because I told them no need to get a lawyer because, like I said, the whole case was bogus. I thought they was just trying to, you know, just you know, do what they usually do, you know what I mean? Just put stuff on you, then you get out months later. I didn't know it was going to be a 20-year thing. But, uh, yeah, we hired someone, you know, as soon as I got found guilty, and uh, they ended up being as bad as the trial attorney. And they're, they're, John was well, con, uh, found guilty but not sentenced, and this new firm came in, and their job was to do some investigation and file a motion for a new trial um, before he was actually sentenced. And they had the case for uh, many months but didn't do the investigation that needed to be done. There was some effort uh, made, but the person that from the firm that they assigned it to um, was a relatively inexperienced lawyer, and he, um, he just didn't go after the right things that he needed to. Um, and and that, that ended up making it look on appeal like John had a lot of people that really looked at the case and uh, there was nothing there because nothing was presented and so he got shot down throughout the whole appellate process. Okay, so at some point did he get a, an a, appellate attorney appointed? No. Well, no they, he, they represented so he, me for uh, Okay. From what I, well, well, you know, so-called represented me from what was that 94 up until the point it was um it was nearly like 2004, I believe, when they just, you know, told me they were done with me and there's nothing else they can do. And at that point, I was, uh, like I said, they, they got me denied at every stage, every level of my appeal, you know what I mean, and uh, my writ. So at this point, they were telling me there was nothing we can do. We done went to the federal courts, and they, they, uh, they denied me on, on, you know, on the merits is what they told me, and where do I want them to send my paperwork? And that was, that was it with them. So at that point, uh, I, I, I just, you know, we had no money. Uh, you know, I, I just reached out to who I had to start. I wrote, I wrote the Innocence, uh, Innocence Project, I write, writing attorneys, trying to get some help. And, uh, you know, and it wasn't until 2009 when I finally, you know, Deja finally picked up the phone. You know, John, you're a strong man. A weaker man would have given up. No, thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah I would just call him a male then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So, um, so you, the attorneys that were hired actually did a writ of habeas corpus. Yes. No. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. In, in federal court. In federal court. Yeah. In federal court. Okay. So. They skipped you, the whole portion of like the, my 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 because I had a uh, uh, state uh, recourse through the state, but they just skipped that because they told me that I would have better you know action in the federal courts because they you know they pay more attention to the case, so they took me straight there with a habeas. And that was, you know. Yeah, the the thing that needs to happen in these cases when it's not done right the first time, the thing that always needs to happen at every stage is quality investigation. And when the cops don't do it and the prosecutor doesn't do it and the trial lawyer doesn't do it, it has to absolutely happen as soon as possible during the appellate process. And that's what these lawyers were hired to do, to do the investigation and the work that was never done, and they didn't do it. Um, and so when we came in, that's what we did, is we just reinvestigated the case. We spoke to the alibi witnesses. We pulled up all the records. We went to the crime scene. We, we did everything How that should have been done, and we did that in a couple of months. In a couple of months. <laughs> in a couple and of months. had done that earlier, John oh, uh, my would have been... Um, you know, out and being able to build his life, um, you know, decades ago. I, you know, and I know Deirdre and John, both of you, uh, we have a number of uh, private investigators across the country and, and public defender investigators as well across the country. And I know they are just cringing when they're listening to this because... Because that is, you're ex- absolutely right. It's, it's the investigation that a case often rises and falls on. And it's a lack of, you know, compassion and caring about the, the other person, you know what I mean? Because like I say, when I got sentenced, you know, the judge had told me something to the effect that, you know, I, I didn't have compassion or, you know, there was, you know, someone was deceased, but I looked at them, they were killing me, you know what I mean, with those two life sentences, so they don't even look, you know, and, and, and even today, they can care less of what happened to me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just bad. The whole system is shot. Well, I agree with you. I certainly agree with you. So, so John, what do you what do you say to somebody that is in prison right now who has a claim of being wrongfully convicted? What what would you tell him to do? Um, don't give in and don't give up. You just gotta uh, you just gotta keep you know pushing forward, and uh, because they're gonna they're gonna create obstacles for you every day, every turn, you know, because that's how it's set up. And you just gotta you know you just gotta keep on keeping on because they they're not gonna make it easy for you. It's not set up for you to get out of these situations. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Period. So you have to uh, overcome the odds and just and don't don't um, <laughs> succumb to being a zombie in prison because that's what they're making in prison. They're making a lot of zombies in there, you know, because they 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 they, they break your spirit. So don't yeah. don't give in to that either because that's you know that's bad. Yeah, I don't know how you don't have your spirit broken. Uh, as I said, you're a, you're a strong man, John. John Smith, you're a strong man. Thank you. Uh, good, you know, good for you uh, that you kept fighting. And, and Deidre, good for you that you have uh, a project that can take a case like John's just out of the clear blue with a phone call. Right. Well, you know, and I'll tell you that the one thing that uh, – I would say to people that are interested in this story is that, you know, whether you've had someone, whether this touches your life personally because you have a loved one that's in or whether you, you just believe that our justice system should do better than this, you, you have to appreciate that this takes a huge amount of resources and time and uh, out-of-pocket expenses. And um, I would encourage people to reach out to their local um, um, innocence organization, um, for people that are interested in supporting us, they can find us on innocencematters.org, and they can find ways to support us either with a donation or volunteering their time. Um, and then um, to understand that we get overwhelmed every time we um, share news of one of our exonerees, uh, we'll get a, a flood of letters of new people out there. And I, I would encourage everyone to think about you know, the only way we're going to stop this is to get it right in the first instance. And that means yeah. the jurors, the prosecutors, the judges, and the defense lawyers all have to be honoring the standard, which is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and not let the emotions of a tragic 
death or, or harm to anyone be the reason you're, you're lashing out at, at this person that's sitting in the chair. You know, it should, the evidence should be overwhelming. That's what proof beyond a reasonable doubt means. It means you're absolutely convinced in this. And when you have uh, this kind of evidence, it's, it's really it's, 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 um, alarming when you look at these cases, at the quality of evidence that was used to take away somebody's uh, freedom for the rest of their life. That's right, and and unfortunately, I mean, we have to address the public too because the general public thinks if you are arrested, you're guilty. Exactly. If you're, if exactly. you're sitting in the defense chair, you're guilty. Exactly. There's there isn't a it doesn't matter whether you have a the prosecutor has a burden of proof. They're there. They must be guilty. All right. Well, hopefully, um, now the climate it is today, everybody know that uh, you can't just take the officer's word and his arrest. At, you know, at face value, now you have to investigate. Exactly right. Not always exactly correct. Right. Clearly. Well, and that's why we appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on the show. And the sh- the, these stories that you're sharing are really important because you, you help educate the public by exposing them to these stories. So we appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate that as well. I, I thank you for the opportunity to, sh- to share your story, John. And, and Deidre, just, I just applaud you for the work you do. Mm-hmm. So we are at the end of our hour guys this is uh thank you so much and um all i can say is john good luck good luck in your future i i know it's still a struggle it's tough getting a job uh i know you have to explain your story every time you you apply for a job it must be horrible but good luck all right thank you i appreciate that and good luck with your grandmother too because i know that's a struggle as well so join me again next week, folks, as we declassify more real stories of the exonerations. Every Thursday morning, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, it's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 